Hello, and welcome back to the season two finale of Give Me Some Truth. My name is Obadiah Jones, and this is the second half of my discussion with author Daphne Reese. On this podcast, I present and highlight new research that helps to unravel fact from fiction in the Beatles' history. And this episode is no exception, although this episode will also explore the history of one of the Beatles' contemporaries. for this evening, the bony rolls. I'm now your host for this evening, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and now your host for this evening, the Rolling Stones. Oh, no, no, no. And now your host for this evening, the Rolling Stones. This episode highlights another wonderful discovery that comes from Daffa's book, The Beatles 1963, A Year in the Life. And as a result, busts a well-established myth. This story concerns Dick Rowe, the A&R man famously blamed for turning down the Beatles after their Decca audition, his signing of the Rolling Stones, and the supposed role that George Harrison played in connecting the two parties. The often-quoted version of the story comes directly from Dick Rowe himself. The most complete version of Rowe's quote comes from the 1998 book The Beatles, An Oral History by David Pritchard, and Alan Lysot. I was talking to George and told him how I'd really had my backside kicked over turning the Beatles down. He said I shouldn't worry about it too much and suggested I sign the Rolling Stones. I said, the Rolling who? He told me I could see them at the Railway Hotel in Richmond. Well, I left him right on the spot, went down to London, picked up my wife and drove to Richmond. I think it must have been the summer. We arrived at the back entrance of the hotel And because of the low sun, I had dark glasses on and had forgotten to bring my other glasses from the car, making it difficult to see. Gradually, I began to make out the room. I saw the group, and then I noticed the room was full of young fellas. There wasn't a girl to be seen. The boys were standing in little groups of two or more, talking to each other. No one was dancing, just chatting and listening to the music. And all the time, they were up and down on the balls of their feet to the rhythm. I asked my wife what the group looked like. I could hear them. It was a nice sort of earthy sound, but I wanted to know what they looked like. She said, the lead singer is very good. I always stay for only 15 minutes when I go to see somebody at a club, for fear they may find out I'm there. So we left. The next morning, I started chasing around to find out how to sign the Stones, and I found Andrew Luke Oldham, their manager. That was the start of the Rolling Stones with us. The problem is, this version of events confuses details, and some of it is pure bollocks. It is indeed. (laughs) The story really begins on Sunday the 14th of April, 1963. John recalled the day in his 1974 interview with Dennis Elsus. In 1963 and 4 and 5, when the the Stones were the group that was coming up hard and strong behind the Beatles, were you all friends? Yeah, uh, we we went to see them at, um, I believe, the place to call Craw Daddy in Richmond. And also, uh, I think, another place in London. And they were run by a different guy than Giorgio Gamelsky, who also dis- discovered brackets, you know, uh, quotes. The What's that group everybody goes for that Jeff Beck was in? Uh, oh, I can't remember the name. 
one of those mid sixties English groups anyway, which I never thought were much cop except for Jeff Beck. Every one of those group, everybody went through the Yardbirds. Yardbirds, that was a son of stones, but they never really had a singer, you know, or a performer. And uh, immediately we started hanging around London. The Stones were just up and coming in the clubs then. And we knew Giorgio through Epstein and we went down and saw them and became good friends. George Harrison remembered an anthology. We'd been at Teddington taping Thank Your Lucky Stars, miming to From Me to You. And we went to Richmond afterwards and met them. They were still on the club scene, stomping about, doing R&B tunes. The music they were playing was more like we'd been doing before we got out of our leather suits to try and get onto record labels and television. We'd calmed down by then. Giorgio Gamelski, an aspiring impresario and filmmaker, had met with the Beatles at Teddington TV Studios that afternoon about making a film together. Gamelski also promoted a music club at the Station Hotel in Richmond on Sunday nights where, from the 17th of February 1963, he featured the Rolling Stones every week. The club was originally known as the Richmond Jazz Club, but was later christened the Crawdaddy on the 7th of April, after the Bo Diddley song, Doing the Crawdaddy, which the Stones regularly closed their set with. Much like Alan Williams was an early pseudo-manager for the Beatles, Gomelski helped the Rolling Stones early on to get bookings and provided them with a residency in Richmond where they could build a following and hone their sound. The Crawdaddy was for the Stones, more or less, what the Cavern was for the Beatles. Although the idea of a film collaboration never amounted to anything, Gomelski invited the Beatles to listen to the Stones that evening in the neighboring town of Richmond. The Beatles accepted the invitation, enjoyed the show, and ended the night at the infamously squalid Edith Grove Flat, where Mick Jagger, Keith Richard, and Brian Jones lived. Ringo said in an anthology, I remember standing in some sweaty room and watching them on the stage. Keith and Brian, wow. I knew then that the Stones were great. They just had presence. The two groups stayed up through the night, finding common musical touchstones, and the Stones shared their collection of rare American blues records. The Beatles invited the Stones to their Royal Albert Hall concert the following Thursday. Mick, Keith, and Brian attended and were impressed by the audience reaction. A friendship and mutual admiration were formed. Jump ahead a few weeks to the 10th of May. The Beatles had returned the day before from holidays and had a free day before they got back to work on the 11th, with a gig at the Imperial Ballroom in Nelson. George and Ringo, back home in Liverpool, attended the second night of a two-day Lancashire and Cheshire beat group contest. They knew some of the groups competing in that night's final and had agreed to present new record mirror trophies to the top three winning groups. This is how George recalled the event for Anthology. There was a big showcase at the Liverpool Philharmonic Hall. The Beatles had become famous, and Jerry and a few others had success, and everybody thought, bloody hell, and was looking up to Liverpool. Nobody had ever played the Philharmonic. They wouldn't let you in, let alone do a rock concert. But suddenly every group in Liverpool was there, even ones that weren't groups before. Groups were forming right, left, and center to try to cash in on Liverpool's supposedly swinging scene. Anyway, I remember meeting some executives from London, one of whom must have been Dick Rowe. He said, you'll tell us who the good groups are, will you? And I said, I don't know about that, but you want to get the Rolling Stones. Dick Rowe, in another version of the story quoted in Bill Wyman's Rolling with the Stones, claimed that he and George were both judges of this contest. Now, in, in the Bill Wyman book, 
Dick Rowe, and I will, quote, I will quote it, Dick Rowe is quoted in the book, George Harrison and I were judging a talent competition in Liverpool and I said, you know, I really had my backside kicked over turning you lot down. He said, well, why don't you sign the Rolling Stones? I said, I've never heard of them. Where do they play? You'll find them at the Railway Hotel at Richmond. From the bright sunshine into the dark room, I couldn't see anything. I gradually began to make out what it was all about. I said to my wife, what do they look like? And she said, the lead singer is very good. I was fascinated by the audience reaction and dancing. But it is not true that they were judges. Record Mirror covered this beat contest um, in great detail, mainly because the editor was one of the um, judges. As the 25th of May issue of the new Record Mirror reported, the judging panel comprised... Peter Pilbeam, BBC Manchester, Franklin Boyd, well-known London music publisher associated with Aberbach, Belinda, etc., Peter Sullivan, DECA A&R manager, Jerry Dawson, provincial news editor of The Melody Maker, recording star Tony Osborne, and Jimmy Watson, editor of The New Record Mirror. Both Peter Sullivan and Dick Rowe, DECA's top A&R men, were there, judging and watching respectively, because the winning groups were to receive Decca recording contracts. This is a telling detail about Decca's mentality at the time. Missing out on the Beatles left EMI's competitor desperate to find a hit-making beat group of their own. None of the contest's top three winners, the Escorts, the Mersey Beats, nor Derry Wilkie and the Pressmen, would prove to be the smash success Decca wanted. Four months later, Bill Harry, of the Mersey Beat newspaper, reported in the 21st of September issue of New Record Mirror that Of the three groups who were awarded recording contracts by DECA at Philharmonic Hall Beat Contest earlier this year, only one has had a record release, and that was on the Fontana label, the Mersey Beats. The fact that the Mersey Beats are in the charts indicates that the groups were good. Come on, DECA, what's happened to the escorts and Derry Wilkie and the Pressmen? Dick Rowe claimed that at George's tip, he took the train back to London that same evening, collected his wife, and went straight to Richmond to catch the Stones in action. So I don't believe that if you're the head of A&R at a major record company that you would walk out in the middle of judging a beat contest. So, But even if he did, what do we reckon? Eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night? He'd get back to London at one, two in the morning, then go to his wife. By the time he got to the crawdaddy, it'd be four in the morning. Um... And anyway, the Stones didn't play there on May the 10th. The Stones played there every Sunday through that, that May. So they played 5th, 12th, 19th, 19th, 26th. In fact, as all this was taking place in Liverpool, the Rolling Stones were at Olympic Studios near Piccadilly Circus recording their first single, a cover of Chuck Berry's Come On. The 19-year-old producer for this session was also acting as the group's co-manager. The week after the Beatles had seen the Stones at the Crawdaddy, Gomeski invited New Record Mirror journalist Peter Jones to see them. The next day, Jones told his friend Andrew Luke Oldham about the group. At the time, Oldham was working in London for Brian Epstein as an independent PR plugger for the Beatles. 
So the following Sunday, at Jones's recommendation, Oldham and Eric Easton, the 36-year-old talent agent he shared an office with on Regent Street, went to Richmond to see the Stones for themselves. Oldham was mesmerized and immediately had ambitions to manage the group. In his memoir, Stoned, Oldham claims he called Brian Epstein up the next morning and quit to follow his new dream. The problem was he was a 19-year-old with only some press-plugging experience. So he convinced the more experienced Eric Easton to partner with him. I mean, the thing about Andrew Luke Oldham again is that having read his books, um, he, he, his memory isn't... Well, I mean, he was a, you know, he was, he was a great storyteller. And, you know, so I wouldn't take everything he says at face value. Oh, well, maybe we should, yeah, we do, yeah, don't take it at face value. I mean, he, I, I think that he, I mean, one of the things I found doing this book is it's absolutely extraordinary how people remember things completely incorrectly. In both of his books, 1990's Stone Alone and 2002's Rolling with the Stones, Rolling Stone bassist Bill Wyman states contradictory information about when the management deal with Oldham and Easton was finalized. At first, Wyman says Brian Jones signed a contract on their behalf on the 1st of May, three days after Oldham and Easton had first seen them. But then he says that the contract was signed by Brian on the 6th of May. Later, in Stone Alone, Wyman reproduced a letter to the group from Andrew Luke Oldham dated the 29th of July, 1965, in which reference is made to an, quote, agreement dated the 9th of May 1963 between Eric Easton, Andrew Luke Oldham, and Brian Jones on behalf of the Rolling Stones. It's not known if this original contract survives. Whether Brian Jones signed it on the 1st of May, the 6th of May, or some other date, the contract seems to have taken effect from the 9th of May. I also found a 3rd of October 1968 Birmingham Post newspaper article reporting on the legal battle between Oldham and Easton after their acrimonious split in 1965. In the court proceedings, it was stated that their original three-year management contract with the Stones terminated on the 31st of August 1966. Although Oldham and Easton did not officially become the Stones' managers until the 9th of May, they almost immediately started working for the group in that capacity. On the 4th of May, Oldham took the Stones to buy new stage outfits, arranged their first professional photo session with his friend Philip Townsend, and they performed that afternoon at a News of the World charity gala at Battersea Pleasure Gardens, the first booking made for them by Oldham and Easton. Oldham also booked them a recording session at Olympic Studios for Friday the 10th of May. With absolutely no experience, Andrew Luke Oldham, fashioning himself as an English Phil Spector, took charge of the session as producer. Most of the actual recording work was done by engineer Roger Savage. That same day, 10th of May, the latest issue of New Record Mirror hit the stands with a feature about the Rolling Stones written by Norman Jopling. Jopling wrote that, Record-wise, everything is in the air, but a disc will be forthcoming. It will probably be the group's own adaptation of the Chuck Berry number, Come On. This was the first national coverage the Stones had, and resulted from Jopling's colleague Peter Jones' 21st of April visit to the Crawdaddy. Three months later, 
the new record mirror was claiming, after the first new record mirror feature, the major record companies phoned up the new record mirror to find out whether or not they were still in time to get the stones on wax. They were, and the result was shortly issued on DECA. So hang on. Did Dick Rowe hear about the stones from George Harrison, or the new record mirror? If Rowe took George's advice, then it's likely that he went to the Crawdaddy two days later, Sunday the 12th of May. So in Bill Wyman's book, he says that Dick Rowe came to see them at the Crawdaddy on Sunday, May the 5th. On Tuesday, Dick Rowe met with Andrew Lou Goldham and Eric Easton, who were the Stones' managers, and signed a deal with Impact Sound. So that's another myth. The Stones right. were not signed to Decca. Directly. No, they were, they were licensed through Impact Sound. And then Bill Wyman, and this is a bit I find a bit strange, and then Bill Wyman says in the, you know, later in the week they signed a contract. I find it strange that he doesn't have the date. I mean, the contract must exist with a date on it. So I find it weird that he doesn't have a date. So that's, that makes me a bit suspicious. Then he says they went into the studio on Friday, May the 10th, to cut Come On. I cannot believe that Bill Wyman would get that date wrong. I don't know what sources Bill Wyman used to base his dates on, but he claims Dick Rowe saw the group before he got the recommendation from George Harrison. But then George also remembered recommending the Stones to him. Could George have a false memory from hearing Rowe's story repeated over the years? That whole timeline is just very suspect. It is, and it surprises me because, you know, Bill Wyman is notorious for being the Stones historian, and he's kept every piece of paper. Um, I, I will say, maybe I shouldn't say this, you can decide whether you want to cut it out. <laughs> okay. In the 1980s, I had a company in England called MRIB. We were uh, a research company. We compiled the chart for commercial radio, the network chart for commercial radio. We did all sorts of things. We did we did the marathon music quizzes on Radio 1 for four years for, for the Nordic Forum Charity, and I did quizzes for Radio 1 called the Great Rock and Roll Trivia Quiz. We did all sorts of stuff. And we were contracted by Bill Wyman to go up to Collindale to find every reference in every pop newspaper to do with the Rolling Stones starting in 63. Wow. And it took us months, and he never paid us. (laughs) So, um, but I, I, I just find it strange that Bill Wyman could get it so wrong if that's the case. Well, as Daffod said, there's another part of the myth. The Rolling Stones never signed directly with Decca, the way the Beatles signed to Parlophone. Oldham and Easton very shrewdly made a deal with Decca that allowed them to own the master tapes and exclusively license the recordings to Decca for distribution. This type of deal was not common at the time and shows how much Decca wanted to make the agreement that they were willing to offer such a favorable deal. Again, Like the Stones' management contract, I was unable to find whether the DECA contract still exists and the date that it was signed. But I did find some clues. Specifically, a letter from DECA to Oldham and Easton exists, dated the 16th of May 1963, in which the label proposed terms for the agreement. Also, a third contract from this time is known to exist. When Andrew Luke Oldham decided that he would be the Stones' record producer, he and Eric Easton formed a production company called Impact Sound. A three-year contract between the Rolling Stones and Impact Sound, dated the 21st of May, 1963, was signed by Brian Jones on behalf of the group to begin from the 10th of May to include their first session together. 
This contract was sold in December 2004 by Leland's Auction House for $12,169.23. The buyer, Matt Lee, is a Stones superfan and holds the Guinness World Record for the largest Stones memorabilia collection. Matt Lee published a book of his archive collection in 2021 called Hot Stuff, and the four-page contract is reproduced in full on page 14. Interestingly, both Leland's and Matt's book describe the contract as the Stones' first management contract, but it clearly is not. It is a contract between the group and the production company for the recordings they make together. Impact Sound agreed to finance all the recordings, but then owned all the rights to those recordings and only paid the group a 6% royalty of 90% of the gross sales. What the group didn't realize at the time was that Impact Sound were getting 14% royalty from DECA, giving them less than half and taking a further 25% commission on their 6% as stipulated in the contract. This meant that the Stones only made 4.5% royalty and had to split it five ways while Oldham and Easton swindled a 9.5% royalty between them. Although the Stones were being taken advantage of by Oldham and Easton, their contract was actually still quite good. A typical recording royalty in America at the time was 3% on 90% of sales. In comparison, the Beatles' original contract with Parlophone only gave them one penny per double-sided single on 85% of sales, and Brian Epstein took a 15% cut out of that. When the Beatles sold a million records, they each only made 750 pounds in mechanical royalties. Interesting. Okay, so Bill Wyman has got that wrong then. Most importantly, the Stones and Impact Sound contract specifically mentions Decca Record Company as the wholesaler. This means that the deal between Impact Sound and Decca for the distribution of the Rolling Stones records was signed sometime between the 16th and the 21st of May. I also know it lasted two years because in the 5th of March 1965 issue of London's Evening Standard, it was reported that the Stones' DECA contract would expire in May 1965 and other major labels were looking to make a bid for them. Ultimately, the Stones would re-sign with DECA for an improved deal brokered by none other than Alan Klein. In the Stones' case, Klein was brought in by Andrew Luke Oldham to replace Eric Easton as their business manager. Personally, I think the mid-May date of the original DECA deal supports my inclination that Dick Rowe went to see the Stones on the 12th of May rather than the 5th of May, but we cannot know definitively. It's amazing how quickly everything happened for the Stones within this month, and their first single, Chuck Berry's Come On, was released by DECA on the 7th of June. It's also interesting to note that Brian Jones alone was signing these contracts on behalf of the Stones. Later, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards amusingly nicknamed the Glimmer Twins, emerged as the leading members of the group as they became the main songwriters. But in the early days, Brian Jones was in charge. He gave them their name and was the main proponent for a purist blues and R&B sound and repertoire. Which makes it somewhat ironic that their choice for their first single was such a commercial song. If we go back to Dick Rowe's version of events, we see several inaccuracies. I, I, I can't even get my head around 
you know, what's true and what isn't true. But all we do know is that he wasn't a judge. George wasn't a judge. He didn't leave and head down to the crawdaddy to see them that night. So I suspect, I, I can't even work out. <laughs> all I can assume is that Dick Rowe did see them on Sunday, May the 5th. He did go up to Liverpool on Friday the 10th. George mentioned the Rolling Stones, who he had seen the previous Sunday. But to make his story sound great, he came up with this invention that he'd never heard of them. If Rowe had already seen the Stones before talking to George, then his story is completely fictitious. If he did not see them until the 12th of May and then signed the deal with Impact Sound the following week, there is at least a kernel of truth as the basis of the story. Given the evidence presented in this episode, that is the best conclusion we can reach until more documents become available. Once again, thank you to Daffod Reese for giving us The Beatles 1963, A Year in the Life. I highly recommend you get yourself a copy. I think uh, your your book does uh, really well what, what Mark Lewison's book do, which, it, which is not to set out to dispel myths, but just to try to tell the truest uh, series of events and the myths just fall away, as, as Mark says. Yeah, I mean... Uh, my my fear is that when Mark's volume two comes out, we'll find I've made a lot of mistakes in '63. <laughs> um, I mean, he was very gracious. He he, uh, he he invited me into his house, and I had a day there going through his filing cabinet, going through everything from '63. And um, and there was a time when I was close to giving up on this because there were certain things. I, I remember there's a photograph of them coming out of. Austin Reed, the clothing store in Regent Street in the summer of 63. And I have never yeah. been able to find the date. And it mm. drove me. And I just thought, I, if I can't find these things out, there's no point in concluding this. And Mark said, no, you just keep going, you're fine. And I was concerned that I didn't have a story for every day. Mm. And he said, no, you don't want a story for every day. If you do, people won't believe that you could did it. They, they'll think you made some of them up. Right. So you're fine not having a story for every single day. And you won't find everything. Uh, I mean, you know, reading Mark's uh, you know, volume one, there's there's a lot in the notes there of him saying, this is what we think happened, but we really don't know and we never will. Um, right. So, yeah, but... Uh, what yeah, was your criteria f- for what, what went into the book or what had to be left with a question mark over it? <clears throat> if, I knew, if I knew something was completely and utterly wrong even though it was the view of somebody telling a story, I would just leave it out. So, for example, I had someone who saw them in Cardiff or someone like that saying, oh, I remember seeing them and Tom Jones and Hermits Hermits won the bill. I go, no, they weren't. And the problem is if you leave it in, it diminishes the strength of the story because people think, well, you know, what, else is, what else is yeah. not true? Okay. So where I knew something was wrong, I would, I would just leave it out of the story. Um, and that was pretty much the criteria. Uh, there were some people, uh, I mean, there's a, there was an interesting one, um, when they played in Whitchurch up in, in January, I um, got an email from somebody that said after the gig, they went round to his house and they all sat down and had coffee and chatted and all the rest of it. And then I heard, I heard from somebody else that said they went round to his house. And... But his story was much more plausible because he was he was he was not the manager of the venue, but he was responsible that night for you know making everything work. He was hired by the promoter to 
Like he'd been doing it for months. And he, and then anyway, and then he told the story about what happened. And there were things like um, I got the autographs, and my little brother was asleep in bed. That, you know, when we when they came round, and uh, he took the autographs into school on the Monday and showed them around and never saw them again. And then there's a whole story about their mother giving them sandwiches and the mother remembers it and tells the story. And then sadly the storyteller passed away last year, but his brother got in touch with me. Uh, He was the one who was asleep and lost the autographs and he confirmed everything his brother said. And he said, yeah, absolutely. They came around. Um, And he even says that his brother I think dropped them off somewhere or I don't know, showed them where they needed to go to get from Whitchurch back to Liverpool, things like that. So the guy that said they went round to his house, it just, it, it just wasn't plausible because he couldn't follow it up with anything other than that. Whereas the guy whose story I did include had the, um, his mother backed it up, his brother backed it up. There'd been a story in the local newspaper years later about, what kind of sandwiches the mother had made and all sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, that was, I had to make a call on that one where two people claim the same thing. I think, I think, I mean, we've talked about two big discoveries, but there's lots of little ones that, that I was really pleased to see, like the, a date for the Libro jeans photo shoot. Yeah, that, okay. So, in the back of the book, there's a section called Discrepancies, Myths and Mistakes. Which is right? great. Bas- which, thank you. And I, and I thought it was fun. And I wanted to cover myself. So I've said, look, if I'm wrong, please get in touch with me. Hmm. So the Libro Jeans ad, um, Libro. we found, Libro, yeah, we found the guy. We found the photographer. Wow. Um, and we didn't get a story out of him. Um, I think because I'd already, I think we had a story for that day. But he clearly remembers John saying we're number one for the third week or something like that. Hmm. So I look back. Okay. So basically the enemy came out on Fridays, but they would have known what the chart was on the Wednesday morning. Right. Or Thursday. Well, well, no, they would know on the Wednesday because it was, they, so they, Tuesday night, by the end of Tuesday is when the enemy would collect, you know, all the chart information would be collected and, and they would let people know that that's what the chart was going to be. Okay. So Wednesday, so the photo session was certainly in the, in the morning. So it wasn't Tuesday. So they would have known on the Wednesday rather than the Thursday. No, no okay. question. So therefore, I looked back and I thought, okay, well, when was Please uh, From Me To You number one for its third week? And... Um, I found a date and I looked at other Wednesdays around the time that from me to you was at number one, whether he got it wrong, whatever. And it was the only date that fitted with that time scale. Right. So yeah, there are things, I, I mean, the, the one that, the one that's confused people for a long time is the famous Valentine swimming pool photo session. Yeah. And I worked backwards from there in that I knew it had to be before Ringo had his Beatle haircut (laughs) at Horns from Jim Cannon. So I knew that it was, I I could stop at that point and work my way back from there. So I then worked, okay, so 
we know in the so the, the photographer for the session um, just gave us a wonderful story, and he clearly remembers driving them to London Airport in his Beetle car. So I was going, okay, when was it possible that they were had to fly from mm-hmm. London up north? So they could have been flying to Liverpool, they could have been flying to Manchester. I suppose they could have been flying to Newcastle, places like I don't know. But I looked at all the gigs they had. Uh, so we knew it was after a certain date and it was before a certain date. Right. So um, to my amazement, and I was kind of a bit worried, because oh, this is not the date I wanted to be because it just <laughs> didn't make it. It wasn't it didn't make sense. I just thought, oh, this is a, this is a bit dodgy. But there is no other date. And it's the day after they cut Please Please Me Home. Which is insane that yeah. they would have, you know, by all accounts, were, were quite ill <laughs> as they were yes. doing it. And, yeah. and then to go to, the, to a swimming pool the next morning for a photo shoot is just right. craziness. And then fly up back north to then do the gig in Oldham that night. Yeah. But there is no other day. There is no other day that I have found <laughs> where they could have flown from London back to Liverpool or Manchester in that time period other than that Tuesday. That, that ticks yeah, all the Tuesday. boxes. And, so yeah. if someone comes forward and says, <laughs> oh, oh and, and also, I'm sorry, they, so one of the guys in the photo session, there were two uh, uh, staffers at Valentine who were in the photo shoot, a guy and a girl. And the guy, we found the guy as well, and he said he mentioned something about please, please me being somewhere in the chart that day. So that t- the single. So that tied in as well with what he said. So you have to take all these different stories you get from people and just try and piece it together. And the other one um, uh, is th- Tony Bramble in his book tells the story of how John almost drove the van off the road. Right. In Wales. In Wales. And so... Um, I, I, I went through every single gig that they did with Neil Aspel as their driver until they had a, a Bill Corbett driving around, driving around in Austin Princess. And so the only gig I could, the only time I could find them driving on that road was when they finished in Clendidno and were driving down to do the week in Bournemouth. But then, and this came to be really late, and I thought, oh, thank God I spotted this one. But I do remember when they were in Bournemouth, three things happened. George pranked his car, trying to escape from fans. Paul took his father, and while they were down there, they drove to Pontins in Bracklesham Bay, the holiday camp, to visit his cousin, Bet Robbins. And Ringo burnt his hand on his way back from Bournemouth to London uh, trying to open the radiator cap. And there's a photograph of him gigging on Monday with a bandage on his hand. So we know that Paul, George and Ringo somehow, I, I guess what happened was that Neil drove them back to Liverpool on the Saturday night after Llandidno, and then the three of them made their way down independently in their own cars to Bournemouth, which would leave John, who didn't have a driving license at this right, point, right. leaving him with Neil and Tony Bramwell in the van together. And I reckoned that he said, oh, I'm going to drive. And, you know, he was the leader of the Beatles. Neil and Tony weren't. 
they probably couldn't say, no, you're not. If if Paul, George and Ringo had been in the van, they would have said, you're absolutely not driving this van anywhere. So it has to be that date. So it ties in two ways. One is how often did, you know, how many occasions were there driving down that road? And I can only find one. And how, and how many occasions are there where John was probably in a position where he could have been allowed to drive the van and that was the only one as well and the other Beatles weren't in the van exactly yeah. exactly yeah. i mean they would have they, the others would have said there's no way you're driving this van you don't you can't drive <laughs> you know so and it makes sense he almost drove him off the road as well right so so um yeah so that one has to be true as well so there's there, there are many instances of things like that where you just had to piece things together yeah and hope that something doesn't put a sparrow in the works and throw the whole story out. But anyway, so there, there are plenty of those. And I know you've been asked this a lot uh, because I've, I've heard you answer this already, but uh, is there another year that you, you would consider giving the same treatment? <laughs> I think the problem is that you have to consider that in the 1963 book, I th- I suspect that 20 or so of the storytellers have already passed away. And some of those stories go back more than a decade. So if I started now on, say, 64, you're already looking at people who probably would be 75 plus. And unless I could really accelerate it and get to them really quickly, I don't think that's doable. And also, I don't see myself going to the Philippines or Australia <laughs> Right. To, to do any research. Interestingly, uh, tracks the well-known um, Paul Paul Wayne's s- s- Paul, company. Yep, Paul. Um, they have. I, I, I spent a, uh, not a day, but several hours there going through some stuff, and they said they have an incredible inventory of stories from 1967, but from fans who used to sit outside at Abbey Road and stuff like that. And I was thinking that, let's see how the 63 book goes. And I might talk to the publisher and say, look, how about doing 67, but in a totally different way, which would just be stories rather than, because, you know, they had no calendar in 67 in the way, because they stopped performing live. Sure. So it would be day after day after day in a studio with not much to report. So so if if the book could be done but from a totally different perspective, then I would certainly look at that. And that would be a nice tail end. I mean, to 63 and 67 would be two, two good bookends, even though obviously they kept going after that. I was, I was thinking about 67. I was, I was going to propose, uh, if, you, if you don't want to do it alone, I'll, I'll go with you on that one. <laughs> well, I mean, I would love to do 64, but um, I mean, I'd love to do any of the years. But the, th- the, the, great, the, the other thing about 63 was they did so much that year. I mean, they were on the road. Constantly. Virtually, I mean, you know, I I wanted to do, um, uh, I wanted to cover every single day of that year, and the two times they went on vacation in May and in September, I I grouped that together under, you know, one date starting and ending. Right. But other than that, there's something for every single day, and I think there's only one day when they did nothing, and I even then I found something like. I, I don't know. I think a, a TV broadcast went out or a radio show or, or they, something. They went to the theater that night or something. Something like that, yeah. yeah but there's yeah. just, I mean, they just never, ever stopped that year. I, I think that came out of, you know, the late 50s and how they gigged. And then and then when Brian Epstein came along, they, he just booked them everywhere. And that's and when you, when you do seven, eight hours a night in Hamburg, you know, doing 
an hour or even in 63 at the latter part doing a half hour show is no big deal so yeah and it, i mean imagine 21 22 years old and you're driving around england and doing gigs every night how much fun would that be well i i would argue that there you could do a day by day of 67 and, and there'd be lots to put in there so uh well we'll see okay <laughs> Somebody, I, somebody wrote to me recently, I love this idea, someone is working on a book um, about the bus journeys they took to their gigs, wow. which I think is just, <laughs> I mean, so I, I mean the, it is, but the great thing is we're 60 years on and, and they are still, they still mean so much to so many people. And I just think that, that it will never end. I, you know, I mean, I, I've said to people, Talking about the the, the relevance of them, we're, we're sixty years on. We still listen to the Beatles. We still hear them on the radio. Revolver came out last year, remixed by Giles Martin. It got to number two in the UK. No, number four in the two in the UK and four in the US. Some, or maybe the other way around. I can't remember. You know, if you go back to nineteen sixty three and go back sixty years, nineteen o three. In nineteen sixty three, were we listening to music from nineteen o three? No, it's as simple as that. And and so to be listening to the Beatles 60 years on, uh, and I'm guessing 100 years on, we'll be listening to them still. They, 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 it will never, ever, as long as people keep being born and growing up, they will still go out and buy Beatles records, this, download Beatles stuff, listen to it. It, it will not stop. because I hope, I hope that, so. Well, it won't. It it just it it can't. I mean, you think about if you think about, say, Broadway musicals. You know, we're now a hundred years on from Showboat, Porgy and Bess. They're still being before. They're still staged. So, if it's good, it will. You know, it will it will continue. And and uh, yeah. So I think there's plenty of mileage for more Beatles <laughs> books about goodness knows what. Okay, well, I'm pushing for 67, the, the year, so. <laughs> All right, well, well let, let's get this one out of the way fully. Yeah, and then, okay. um, uh, yeah, Tracks did tell me that maybe we could do something um, with regard to 67, and I'll just have to talk to the publishers and say, how do you feel? But, you know. Uh, and if you need another researcher, I'm volunteering myself, so. I will absolutely yeah. consider that because, uh, yeah, take, take a load off me, I have to tell you. <laughs> All right, David. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, thank you for the book. It's wonderful. And I appreciate you giving me an hour to talk about it. Thank you so much indeed. Thanks for listening. If you can add any missing information to this episode, please get in touch. I'd also love to hear your thoughts about the history we have covered this season. If you'd like to submit a question or topic for the next season of Gimme Some Truth, you can write to me by email to gimmesometruthpod at gmail.com or contact me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at gimmesometruthpod. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a future episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast and want to hear more, please consider leaving a five-star review to help me reach more listeners. See you next season.